Hi, I'm Dr. Rosalind Beer, and you're listening to Further with Founders. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking to business founders within the Further Network. They'll be telling me about their journey so far, the highs and the lows, the bootstrapping and the funding rounds, the business challenges and the human stories. The guest on this episode is Derek Corcoran of Scorebuddy, from corporate scaling to his own entrepreneurial journey. Enjoy the chat. So with me today is Derek Corcoran of Scorebuddy and joining us also is Richard Watson, the head of Further VC. So um, Derek, can you talk to us a bit about your background, uh, your early career days um, before you got into your entrepreneurial mode of operandum? Sure, no problem. Um, yeah, so look, uh, I, I'm, I'm, not, I came, I'm working in tech all my life, but uh, I'm, I don't have a technical uh, qualification. I came out, of, uh, came out with a, a BSc in, in marketing from Trinity in the early days. I had a choice. I could have gone into, I had two job offers at the time, one for uh, insurance, uh, FBD, and the other was for a small Irish startup that was writing uh, code in Pascal for early Apple IIs, right? So they, they, they wrote a payroll system. You could pay 50 people on an Apple II back in the day, right? So uh, two engineers out of, uh, out of Trinity and uh, grew the business. And so I got that sort of uh, exposure to early startup, although I probably wasn't aware of what I was experiencing at this time. Um, spent about three years with those guys and uh, learned a lot, uh, to be honest. Um, there was a graduate intake then, uh, recruitment drive by Telecom Aaron. And what was interesting about that was that the uh, telecommunications space was going through a transition, a technical transition uh, or technology transition from uh, analog to digital. And with my background in early uh, personal computers and the digitization of, of software, etc., I was, a, I was a natural fit. So uh, I, was, uh, I was taken in through that graduate intake program. Uh, I was sent out to Marion House, uh, Rock Road. And uh, essentially, I was working with a team out there where we were taking uh, telecoms tech and making it available to enterprise customers, right? So Nortel Networks had a manufacturing plant down in Galway. Uh, we would have competed with the likes of Ericsson, um, uh, Alcatel, people like that. And we were essentially uh, bidding for business with, you know, Apple and Cork and uh, the General Hospital in Letterkenny, etc. Right. So the telephony systems that supported the activities of these uh, corporates, we were we were marketing and selling that. So I got a huge grounding in enterprise sales, um, tendering processes in terms of public procurement, and working with a really cool team actually. Um, both we were a reseller, so we were working with Nortel Networks. So I got exposure to indirectly through to, to US corporate behaviors and sort of sales processes. Um, ended up running a team there, uh, was with uh, Telecom Aaron uh, as it became Aircom in due course uh, for about six years, right? Um, so I had a team about maybe 10 before I left. Uh, I was uh, approached by AT&T, the uh, US telecoms giant, and they were looking to set up a uh, customer premises equipment, as they called it at the time, um, sales operation in, in Ireland, right, reporting into, into EMEA. And uh, yeah, that, that, was probably, that was probably the big decision, you know, in career. I could have stayed with a semi-state. In fact, they went through public, uh, public listing uh, shortly after that, and I missed out on all that, all that gravy. Uh, but 
yeah, I found myself sitting at a desk with a notepad, a, a telephone, and uh, no orders and no pipeline, right? So, so uh, did that feel like a little bit of an entrepreneurial experiment? You know, yeah, as in, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was high risk. You know, from where I was sitting, um, not quite the same as as funding it yourself, but uh, certainly from a career perspective, it, it was high risk. Um, so, thankfully, the risk paid off, and. Uh, I worked with AT&T. The part of AT&T I was in became Lucent Technologies. Um, AT&T had a quite, a, quite a big footprint here. They had a manufacturing plant out in Bray and another one out in uh, Ballycoolin. So, uh, but the bit that I was in became Lucent and then became Avaya. Um, and I was with them for about six and a half, seven years. At, at that stage, I'd, and again, I suppose the learnings there where I was running a P&L. Uh, it was about you know, $20 million when I left and about 30 plus people. So... Uh, Whilst we were part of a huge international entity, uh, we were operating uh, almost semi-autonomously in Ireland, reporting into a VP in, in London. So, again, huge learnings. Um, you, the corporate mentality methodology is very different. Uh, so it was a nice, uh, a nice uh, aspect to, to building up my experience. Do you find that you had your, your computer knowledge and background um and then your sales and business development was really kind of honed in those years. Like, was that was that really what you were? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I'm I'm sort of a classic sort of um, master of none, right? So, you know, I I I, I, I see the I see the business world through through I suppose marketing and sales commercialize. But I always had an aptitude for technology, and I was never happy with just reading the brochure. I really needed to know how the tech worked. So right from the early days, with you know Apple II's and floppy disks, through to uh, telephony systems, uh, networked telephony systems. So you have all the telecommunications tech, along with all the software tech and the networking tech. So uh, you just you just accumulate all of that information, um, and I suppose I had a natural aptitude for that. So I do see things through through design eyes, through engineering eyes. But with a commercial wrap, you know. And what about passion then? So, you know, you're doing this for other people. When did the kind of the entrepreneurial bug start to bite that you wanted to move out into your own? I think I think we were always trying to so there was new tech coming from the US through through AT&T and we were trying to apply that to the Irish marketplace. And one of the segments that that uh, was differentiated within telecoms was contact centers, right? And the IDA was wheeling in large contact centers back in the day. Um, and we were kitting these out with specialist telecommunications platforms, right? And on top of that, there was new tech coming in in the shape of speech recognition software. And there was a little bit of speech recognition before that, but it wasn't as, as comprehensive. And we were bidding into Bank of Ireland for uh, a tele-banking solution for them, uh, wearing my, my AT&T hat. Um, and we were exposed, I was exposed to this this new tech, and it looked like it could be disruptive, right? So it started fizzing in the back of my head going, okay, this is getting interesting, right? Um, and parallel with that, telecommunications was changing. So bandwidth was becoming commodity, right? So it no longer was ridiculously expensive to, make, you know, to, to have a voice call between A and B. Um, and so the combination of the disruptive technology and the changing infrastructure picture suggested a business opportunity, right? So the idea was that it was the early day, it was pre-SAS, and people know what's, what I mean by that, it was what they called AP, um, application service provider, ASP. But basically, you were building a piece of kit somewhere, you were putting software on that, and you were bringing the traffic to you. And that was more doable as, as the telecoms industry was changing. And the, te- uh, and the platform that I was imagining 
would, would develop was around this interactive voice response. So automating customer service uh, interactions in a centralized platform and bringing the traffic to me and charging on a consumption basis. SaaS by another name, but it was hardware-based and it was telecommunications. It was sat in the telecommunications space. So as I got to, as we went through the process of bidding to uh, to Bank of Ireland, it was clear that there might be an opportunity here. So I took the plunge, right? Um, thankfully, I managed to secure the, the Bank of Ireland business on my own behalf, prime that contract. Um, I spun off the, the platform and the dev work to third parties in the US and the UK. Um, and we delivered that to, to Bank of Ireland. And it was a, it was a very lucrative uh, contract over a number of years, right? So that was really the seed funding for what was Sentient Solutions uh, at the time, right? So that was the kickoff okay. contract. So, and that was your leap into doing your, was, your entrepreneurial yeah, was, journey? Was, the bug, the bug had I been... I was walking out into the cold, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. talk to me then. So Sentinel was set up and then, you know, you talked about... So ScoreBuddy, which is obviously your current baby yeah. <laughs> yeah. the baby of all yeah. um so talk to us about how that came around because you talked to me it was a kind of a product development feature but it's now become something much more yeah it's evolved look yeah sentient was set up essentially as a software company back in 2001 right so we were 10 years building out software solutions on our platform and then selling them as a service um now that's you know having a having a software company is both a good thing and a bad thing you know, you can have an idea on the weekend, begin building it on a Monday morning, and then you discover by Thursday, actually, nobody wants to buy it. So it's really dangerous because y- you can explore and experiment, but not everything, you know, not everything is uh, hits pay dirt, right? So, uh, but we did have a number of products. We probably built six, seven different products, um, some of them tangents, some of them core. Uh, not all of them paid off, um, but enough of them paid off to, to, to fund the business and to grow us sort of uh, iteratively over time. So we were supplying into Southwestern down in Clonakilty, and they're a business process outsourcer. So they, they sell their customer service teams as, a, as an outsourced service. And they had an issue. So the business problem that they had was that they were doing quality evaluations, which is a normal operational behavior within contact centers. It, it maintains consistency for agents. It provides coaching information to, to improve agent skills and behaviors and, and knowledge. So it's, uh, it was being carried out using spreadsheets, right? So three evaluations per agent per week, uh, 500 agents, that's a lot of spreadsheets, right? And they were struggling with this. And all this data that they were collecting which is used for one-to-one you know, conversations with agents, they wanted to, to collate and to aggregate that into a, a business intelligence engine. So they were trying to build out a dashboard that would accumulate you know, metrics from different tech stacks, put it in one place, and then present that to their clients, their end client. Um, and they were struggling with this bit. So they came to us and said, look, can you do anything, right? So we had built something um, which we called voice surveys. So it was essentially a bit like SurveyMonkey for telephones, right? So you had a web interface where you could build a questionnaire. So it was sections, questions, answer types, outcomes, numbers, etc. So we thought we might be able to pivot this, this piece of code into this space. Um, Actually, we ended up building it from scratch, but we knew what we were doing. We had a blueprint. And so uh, we built a form builder, which you could access on our servers through a browser. Uh, you could design up your own uh, evaluation form, effectively a tick sheet. Uh, you could populate that with, with results, and then we would allow you, we would schedule an export of that data to a BI tool. 
So that was the genesis of, of Scorbity, and that's what is still at its core. Um, Can we I ask you just... Yeah, sure. um, so just obviously you had all that knowledge, you had the software, so you had in-house development. So a lot of, of, of companies are coming up with an idea and they have to maybe go outside, find maybe a co-tech co-founder mm -hmm. or they have to go out and have something built elsewhere. Would you recommend that something's done in-house and to keep that IP and that de development in-house? And, and also just talk to me about the validation around that as well, you know, knowing that you have a customer who's actually going to buy and want, wants what you actually are building. Yeah, so look, I think we, we invested, I went through a number of cycles, right? So the initial project I mentioned in relation to Bank of Ireland, I, I, I outsourced the development work on that, right? And that was fine, and I outsourced the support of that on long term. But as soon as we had funding, I started looking at bringing it in-house, right? Not that specific skill set, but, but development skill sets um, to develop out the other product, products that we, we envisaged. Um, so we went through that and we built up a small uh, development team. Now, I suppose the advice I would give to startups is if you're non-tech and you have a great idea that sits in that space, it's no harm to go to proof of concept or market uh, viable product outsourcing. As soon as you start getting traction, you need to look to bring those core skills in-house because it speeds up your agility. The guys have skin in the game. They sense the excitement when you win new deals. So you need that in-house. I suppose, you know, ironically, you get to a certain scale and the in-house team is becoming economically expensive and you then start looking at uh, how can I run outsource teams and hybrid models. So you go through through a cycle, really. Um, and uh, I suppose, again, to, to your question around validation, if I was thinking back, and I, I mentioned the, the, the curse of having a software company is that you can have ideas on the weekend and start building them, you know, without validation, and that's dangerous. So one thing I would certainly advocate for is validation, market validation. It could be as simple as a few wireframe mock-ups in a PowerPoint and showing it to somebody and going, would you use that? And if they say yes, well, the next question is, would you pay for it, right? And that is absolutely vital because you can save a fortune on, on tangential development projects, right? Um, so you're a little bit different because you had a number of products. So when was the point, the tipping point where you said, right, ScoreBuddy is the one that we're going to put your, you know, everything, resources, everything into, energy into? And was it your passion? You know, was this where you thought this was the future? Your innovation? Yeah, I think, look, I, I think for, for entrepreneurs and for innovators, the excitement is the new things. It's, made, it's putting two, it's taking that and that, putting them together and creating a new uh, product that people want, right? So, so the buzz is, is around that. Um, we were a product house, so we were, you know, generating new products. Some of those weren't in, in our core markets, which is sort of interesting. We got into the aviation space, we got into assistive technology space. Um, not everything we 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 uh, we kicked off and and invested in hit pay dirt by any means, um, but I think it was clear when we when we had the precursor to score with the QMS product that I that I described. Within a short period of time, we had two more customers. So suddenly we had three customers. So that there's your validation, right? We started looking outside of that and going, well, hang on, is this a universal behavior within the contact center sector? And what else is out there? And when we started looking, there wasn't anything else, right? There was SharePoint, and there were people building in-house web pages, and but nothing that really streamlined this internal process. So, you know, looking at looking out into the marketplace, it appeared there was white space there for us to, to actually sell into. Um, we had validation from three Irish, as it turned out, BPO customers. Uh, so 
there was clear um, traction in terms of the product. And we just sort of established a price point as well, which is sort of interesting. So, uh, so yeah, so it, it began to look like it had legs, right? Good. So the timing of all of this for ScoreBuddy, um, you know, it was kind of around COVID. So I wanted to kind of move on to the topic of resilience. You know, can you, you've had a, such a wealth of experience. You've had, you've, you know, launched and relaunched lots of products and you had such a career. You know, resilience, burnout, you know, keeping yourself going, you know, it all sounds quite easy when you talk about it. So I want you to kind of maybe share with us some of those difficult times um, sure. where you weren't so sure. Oh, yeah, there was, there was lots of those, right? So, uh, yeah, look, in the very early days, um, we had our business plan and it was perfectly manicured and uh, we took that and we, we hawked it around the VCs and uh, some of the same names that still exist in Dublin, some, some that don't. Um, and we spent probably about six months and we were very small. I mean, we were a three-man outfit at that point, right? So uh, we hawked it around trying to get seed capital, really, to build out the platform. So we had some cash flow. And that was putting food on the table, but it really wasn't funding growth. So uh, we, we, we went hell for leather. We had, you know, corporate advisor, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, spent a lot of money on corporate advisors, spent a lot of time, you know, doing the, the beauty parade. And within six months, we realized, actually, we sort of lost ground. You know, uh, we're running out of cash and we've taken our eye off the ball. So, you know, my advice to, to, to startups is you've got to be really careful uh, as you, it's quite time consuming. It's a, it's a big overhead going for funding. Uh, you need to realize that and you need to keep the lights on behind that. Otherwise, you're going to run out of runway. So that was one twitchy point in our genesis, right? Um, once we established some products and we had some cash flow and, and stability, uh, you know, some of the pressure comes off. But you're still trying to grow and you, you still live off every new deal. Um, and parallel with that, you're trying to build out products. So it can be, uh, it can be uh, I suppose, demanding, right? Uh, certainly for the CEO because you're involved in everything, right? So every problem lands on your desk. Um, and uh, so you're, you're trying to provide leadership and direction. Um, we got through a, a fairly stable period of time. Um, and then uh, we were about to push the button on a scaling exercise. So we had quite a strong balance sheet. We were going to spend some of the cash out of the balance sheet and grow the business. Um, and we had a plan. And then, and we just started that spend. So amp the marketing, add in contract developers so that we could speed up development work, pump the sales team, etc. right? So uh, we had a spend plan. We were going to run some losses for probably 18 months, 24 months. And then COVID hit, right? Uh, we'd also moved building at that point as well. So we had new overheads. So... It was uh, un, it was un, uh, it was untimely, right? So we were managing obviously the operational issues, which is get everybody working from home 100 percent within sort of 24, 48 hours, uh, and all. And, and how do you change your behaviours, your management behaviours to cope with that? Um, so that was one aspect of it, but also there was the uncertainty in the marketplace, right? So we were selling into the US and the UK. We had no idea what the economic impact of this pandemic was going to be how dramatic it was going to be, what our customers were going to do. Um, and so we immediately pulled back on all the spend, right? So we cranked back on the marketing, let some contractors go, uh, negotiated a discount on our, on our rent, etc. right? So all the things you do. Um, so we pulled back in, right? Um, we went back into a cash positive space. Um, we probably dropped about eight points of growth over that 18-month period. Um, so we didn't stop growing, thankfully, 
Um, and that was down to being across multiple sectors. If we'd only been in travel and hospitality, uh, we would have been, you know, goosed, right? But because we were across multiple sectors, healthcare is pretty stable and, and counter-cyclical. Um, other areas like uh, e-retail, home deliveries, we had customers in that space and they all bounced as we so lost at the back end. just jump in on the sectors that were actually performing and, and kind of yeah, move away from us. the ones that yeah, just, they yeah. sustained us, exactly. you know, and kept us So coming. did that take a kind of, a, I mean, just wanted to kind of touch on the team then, because obviously, you know, you're leading everyone, but how important were having good people around you and, you know, in terms well, yeah. of... Look, you know, we, if, we, if I think about our assets, right, we have some code, you know, we have IP assets, but really our assets are our people, right? So the code will only sit in a, in a server on, unless somebody does something with it. So we're hugely dependent on the team that we have. We like to think we have a, a really strong culture. Um, that certainly got us through the, 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 the cold weather, uh, the, you know, the commercial cold weather. Um, and uh, I suppose the, the challenge as we grow as a business, and, you know, we went from 20 years ago, you know, one person, two people, four people, six people, eight people, we're now 50 people, right? So, you know, the dynamics of that are very different. Um, there certainly is a tipping point as a CEO where it's too much and you need an exec team to start shouldering some of that and 18 months ago we started that process of putting in a, a senior exec team just to own particular aspects of the business and make them work um, so yeah so we're halfway through the middle of a three-year uh, scaling plan uh, strategic plan um, we're at the point where we think we're investor ready and we need that injection of growth uh, growth investment to really carry the, the growth curve and, and bring us up that. Okay, so let's just move on to funding this. So you've already alluded to it. So where are you at in the funding stage? So obviously you were self-funded from the... Bootstrap. Yeah, bootstrap. Really yeah. last 20 years. Um, uh, so we funded Scorbity out of, you know, uh, cash flow and out of, out of reserves. Um, we've got to a point, I suppose, 18 months ago, we sat down and we wrote a three-year plan. We set goals for what we thought the investors need to see to be confident about putting putting uh, growth funding into the business. Uh, number of KPIs in the SaaS world, those KPIs are driven by your growth year on year, your um, annual recurring revenues, um, and your retention. Right, So they're probably three fundamental uh, keystone uh, KPIs. So we worked really hard to make sure that they were all in the green and that they married up with, uh, I suppose, the best profile companies that were um, attracting investment globally. Um, the other driver for, for, for investment is competition, right? So we know we have direct competitors who are well-funded out of the US. Um, uh, and in order to compete with them in a the marketplace and to, from a marketing and a sales perspective and a product perspective, we need, we need that uh, sort of injection of, in, of investment yeah, on, a, exactly. on a bigger level. Okay, yeah, so yeah. I'm just going to bring Richard in, Richard Watson. So, just from your expertise in VC and raising, so just generally, you know, what are VCs looking at? What is attractive to a business? And from Scorebody, you know, what what do you think is is investable? You know, what do you like. The yeah, sound of it. thanks, Roz. Uh, yeah, um, so we we run a fund. It's it's a seed to Series A fund. We're very active in the market, business to business, uh, SaaS and medtech, mainly business to business SaaS companies across a, a, a wide range of, of vertical markets. Um, so we'll talk about SaaS now. So interesting to hear your story, Derek. Um, I mean, 
the way we look at a, a SaaS business, uh, first and foremost, I mean, as I've said this before, uh, the team, you know, we look at the, the team and we look for all those characteristics, some of which we've touched on, resilience, domain knowledge, complementarity. We want to see a, a nice kind of team, nicely balanced between tech and commercial uh, and so forth. So the team is, is kind of the most important element for us. Uh, but obviously we look at everything that moves in the business. The market uh, is key and, and getting the market timing right is, is very important. We, we have experience of going into markets, into companies selling into markets that are too early before, and that can be very challenging. So, I mean, the way we'd look at a SaaS business at, uh, such as yours, you're probably beyond, you know, you've kind of grown it, um, bootstrapped it, grown it organically and invested from, from the business. So I, I'm not sure what stage of revenue you're at. As, as I touched on, we're sort of seed to series A. So we invest in some companies that are at seed stage and some companies that are kind of maybe at a kind of early series A stage. So really, as a software business, we're, we're looking at your, your, your traction. Uh, we're looking at sort of the unit economics uh, that are core to SaaS businesses. So we look at your monthly recurring revenue. Um, we, look, we look at your churn rate, which you, you touched on, and growth. And, and then the unit economics, what are the costs of acquiring customers? And is that scalable? Um, you know, and, and so we see a lot of SaaS businesses. I kind of broadly put them into two very crude buckets. One is kind of companies where they're selling large enterprise uh, uh, packages where you know your customer size could be anything from 100k up to a million plus and and then there's the kind of the more volume play where it's you know maybe sub 20 30k per customer even sub 10k uh, and so you need to get a lot of customers so for those types of SaaS businesses we're really focused on the unit economics um, and what we really want to see is sort of traction and a scaling strategy so if you raise let's say you're you're raising a, a C plus round or small series A round of a few million where will that get you? Um, you know, typically companies at seed stage, we're, looking, we're kind of saying, okay, ultimately we want to make an exit. So how is this business going to exit and what does it need to do to get there to, to, for us to make a good return? So typically, you know, it's very crudely for SaaS businesses, we're looking for kind of companies that can go from, say, a few hundred K in ARR to one, one and a half million sort of in, a, in 18 months and allow enough runway then to raise another round. So we're always looking as, at the journey as sort of stepping stones towards an exit. If you're a bit further on, your revenues will be higher. So let's say you're at a million in ARR. What will, what will you do with this investment? You know, what, what are the underlying economics of the business? How are you going to grow the team? Um, you know, how is your sales and marketing strategy going to develop? Do we believe, say, that this round will take you from one million in ARR to four million, let's say, or three million? Um, and, and how long will it take you to get there and put a little bit of contingency in as well just for rainy days or kind of economic shocks so we are kind of uh, conscious of the macro environment so for us it's really it's about the team it's about obviously showing the market validation it's the traction the acceleration and traction and what we believe investment can do for the business and where that will get the business to okay super so um i think you know from the sounds of it you know you you've got a lot of knowledge behind you and you've done an awful lot of things in your career both at corporate level but then also as an entrepreneur would there be any advice would there be advice or kind of key lessons or learnings that you would pass on to others coming down the road maybe earlier stage or even at the stage of trying to raise even the first round what would you advise them yeah i suppose look you know to just echo some of the some of the commentary i made earlier you know not everything that glitters is gold you know not every product has a market, um, and uh, you know, it, it, I, I think that market validation step is extremely important. It'll save you a lot of tears uh, and a lot of wasted effort um, just to 
and be and be big enough and and man enough or woman enough to to say actually do you know what my idea hasn't got legs right mm -hmm. I'll find another one okay so I think that's that was critical um, as I say I had I would say the luxury of having a couple of failed products you know in our portfolio um, but really you want to avoid that and if you've only got the one product you can't afford it right so that would be one a key lesson uh, I think persistence right so be confident about your idea if if you've if you've market validated your idea and you're confident about it, make sure you stick with it and, and be persistent through what will be on occasion challenging times. Um, have fun along the way, I think, but critical for any business that's actually up and running is mind the cash. Keep a close eye on the cash. Monthly management accounts, I had them right from day one when I was a one-man show. So I think... Uh, you can come a cropper on that. It can look great, you know, on the sales side of the house, but uh, if the, if you don't mind the cash, you can you can fall off the bike. You know? And what about burnout? I mean, is that is that something that you've come across or had, or you know, personal? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say quite burnout, but uh, what I would say is that as a company grows and becomes more complex, right? So many companies start with a simple idea and it's very manageable. Um, one or two people, that's not so difficult to manage, but. As you get bigger, uh, the you know that the demands of the team internally, but also trying to keep all the balls in the air, trying to keep an eye on the horizon, see where the clouds are coming from. Um, you need help with that, right? So you know, I, I would say the what was transformative for me personally over the last two years is uh, having an exec team of, of experienced professionals who we can set the high, I can set the high level strategy and goals, and then I can trust them to go off and, and do it. It won't be simple. They'll they'll come back and ask questions, etc. But it 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 feels like the burden is shared rather than all resting on on the CEO. Right? Okay, super. So, on that, just to finish off, you know, what's the vision for Scorebody, but also what's your personal vision for the future? Yeah, look, you know, the excitement comes from from building out a company internationally, and you know, signing customers. We signed a customer last week in South Africa, another one in Indonesia. You know. The majority of our business comes from the US and the UK, so that's great. Um, and we can do that from Dublin for now, right? But, you know, we're looking at scaling, which means we probably need boots in the streets over in the US. Um, we will need a bigger development team. And the aspiration really is to continue on a 30, 35% growth path, which, you know, as you get bigger, that, that can become challenging. So, uh, but the excitement is there too, right? So as I project forward a couple of years, I know what I want the company to look like. I know what I want the product to look like. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the driver. That's the excitement, yeah. And your personal journey then, Derek? Journey. What's, what, <laughs> what's left for you to conquer? Um, I, I, I have a sort of a, a notional number in terms of scale, in terms of where I think personally I can take this business, right? And I'm under no illusions. I think it will need a different sort of CEO when it reaches a certain scale. Um, at that point, I'll, I'll step back. How far I step back is to be determined. Um, but again, I, I feel I have a lot of experience and uh, depth of knowledge and domain experience, and I have no problem sharing that. You know, So at some point, either lecturing or mentoring or who knows, right? But certainly I keep the hand in, I would expect. Yeah, so you're never really retiring, as in... No, you know, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think entrepreneurs don't think so. really do. This, you're just on to the next more exciting thing. Yeah. Shining, something shiny in you. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, thank you so much for sharing all of your experiences and knowledge and it's been great to have you today and thank you Richard too. Thanks. You've been listening to the Further With Founders podcast. I'm Dr. Rosalind Beer. I'm looking forward to you joining us on our next episode.